0: Hanisha here. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast, Mahan Health with Dr. Hanisha. Mahan literally translates to great in Sanskrit, and it only makes sense to have the absolute best when it comes to your health. My goal is by you listening or watching this podcast, you're getting just a little bit closer to achieving Mahan or great health yourself. This podcast is all for you, so please make sure to comment what you would like to learn more about so I can get a guest on the show who's an expert in that field, or I might even talk about it myself. I do see patients and clients all over the world virtually, so make sure to book your free 15-minute phone call today to see how you can start achieving Mahan or great health yourself. All right, let's talk about the episode for today. I'm so excited for today's episode because we are talking about one of my absolute favorite topics, sex. So sexuality is something that we tend to shy away from um, as a culture, and especially for women, we were a lot of us were grown up or have grown up thinking that we are not allowed to be sexual beings. And that is simply not true. So this is why I am so excited. I had the opportunity to interview the amazing clinical psychologist, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Since Valentine's Day is coming up, I thought this is an extremely appropriate episode as we are reminded to love ourselves, whether or whether or not, whether or not we have a partner. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Dr. Solomon. Dr. Solomon is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology, adjunct faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University, and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute of Northwestern University. She maintains a psychotherapy practice for individual adults and couples, teaches and trains marriage and family therapy graduate students, and teaches the internationally renowned undergraduate course, Building Love and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. Dr. Solomon writes a column for Psychology Today and is the author of two books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. She is a highly sought after speaker and is frequently asked to talk about love, sex and marriage with media outlets like The Today Show, O Magazine, The Atlantic, New York Times, The Economist, Vogue and Scientific American. So she's kind of a big deal. (laughs) Dr. Solomon lives in Chicago with her husband of 20 plus years and their two teenagers Dr. Solomon was so much fun to talk to, and I know I felt empowered talking to her, so I hope you feel the same and are excited to take your sexy back as well. All right, well, I, I'm not going to hold you up any further. Let's get on with the show. Make sure to rate and review the podcast and let us know what you thought of the episode, and remember to reach out to Dr. Solomon or myself after the show. All right, Enjoy. Hello, Dr. Solomon. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to have connected with you. Um, I've been following you on Instagram and I absolutely love your stuff and I just got your book. And so very excited uh, to have you on the show today. Oh, good. Good. It's great to be with you. Yes. Awesome. All right. So um, this is a question that I kind of like to ask all my guests is, because I love to learn about your journey, your story, how did you get here? where like what brought you to um, becoming this guru of like sexual health and psychology and bringing that all together? So tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah. So let's see. I mean, I you know, I
1: grew up since I was like, five years old wanting to be a pediatrician that was what I wanted to be my entire life and I think that was just from a sense of wanting to help people my mom always says oh you wanted to rescue the world since you were a little girl and I just I loved that, that sense of like being of service being helpful that's that's been part of me forever Mm -hmm. Um, But I went, so I went to college, you know, fully intending to just use college as a vehicle to go to medical school and ended up taking a women's studies class my second year at college and just was like blown away by the study of gender and sex and power and identity and race and culture and i was just like fascinated by these systems and who we are as individuals within these larger systems and so i pivoted away from medical being a medical doctor to becoming a psychologist and it has just like suited me so well and i you know i look back now and it seems so obvious like i was the girl like on sunday nights i would slip off away from my family and get under my covers and listen to dr ruth westheimer who is like this pioneering sex educator, you know, in the 1980s, wow. I'd have my Walkman and like be hiding because I just felt so naughty listening in on these grown up conversations about relationships, about sex, about pleasure. I was fascinated by her role, you know, in that. And mm-hmm. um, so it kind of seems obvious now in the rear view mirror that this was sort of where I was going all along. But it has been, um, it's been a really beautiful. Career for me. I love that I get to wear lots of hats. So I will, I do therapy part of my week. Um, I teach, you know, often therapists um, how to work with couples, how to think about love and sex, Um, emerging adults. I do a lot of work around helping therapists work well with emerging adults. And then I get to spend time writing and posting on social media and having conversations with interesting, wonderful people like yourself.
0: Oh, wow. That's so awesome. So you're, you're essentially like a Renaissance woman in general doing all the things, um, which, and and that's so cool how, uh, how you've had that experience since such a young girl, like since you were such a young girl, because, um, I think that's something that a lot of young women like to explore, but they feel kind of, like, they're, like you said, it feels naughty or you're not allowed to, right? It's not okay. Um, whatever. It's a sin. Th- these sorts of things that we're constantly taught. So I guess let's like get right into the meat of it. So what, what do you feel like is wrong with the way we as women are taught about sexuality? Oh my gosh.
1: I was going to say I could write a whole book on the subject, but I literally just did write a whole book on the subject. So yeah, I mean, that was like this, you know, this, this new, um, new book, new ish book um, that, so I I wrote Loving Bravely, which was my first book, which really is like sort of this general manual, like a way of understanding um, how our past our cultural identity, our experiences, all of the stuff that we bring into intimate relationships, how all of that, our sort of, I call it a love template, um, our experiences and our beliefs and our family systems, we bring all that into our intimate relationships. So that was my first book, Loving Bravely. And even as I was writing that book, I was just so aware that I wanted to flesh all of this out around the topic of sex, because I just have had you know, 20 years of experience now as a therapist working with couples, most of my couples are midlife couples, while also having one foot um, at Northwestern University and talking to um, late teens, 20-somethings about love and sex. And this topic of sex, as you're saying, is so shrouded in sin and shame and silence. And there's no way to disentangle the topic of sex from gendered messages. And so it, it was really important for me to claim the second book, which is called Taking Sexy Back. I um, love that title, really, by the way. Thank you. thank you. It was a bold title. I was like, I okay, I'm it. going to step into, the you know, the when you write a book, you it's a relationship between you, the, the writer, and the publisher. And they were like, this is the title. And I was like, is it though? And it, it is, I think it's a beautiful, unapologetic title for yes. a book that really helps us as women understand that, we're given a lot of messages that end up taking us from a, a position of being able to be powerful, loving, connected, to just being um, afraid and silent and still um, when it comes to the topic of sex. And all of that is—it's um, just dangerous, and we deserve better.
0: Definitely, yeah, and I. I love, like I said, I love that title. And I love that you're talking about this so unapologetically and bringing all of this up to the forefront of our, of our minds, because this, like you said, we we have been taught all these negative things about it and just having that. I mean, I think that's really cool that you work with um, young adolescents um, in, in college and stuff, because that's such a Crucial age, I feel like, where you're really learning to explore yourself and learn about what's going on, and and that can be very formative in terms of how your future relationships are or your current relationships. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: and you know, we're we're in this moment where I, I started working on the book right as um, the Me Too movement started, right? So fall of twenty seventeen, when what we became like the veil, the curtain that was pulled back was really on looking at all of the damage that is done when sex is not integrated right when we aren't able to integrate who we are as sexual beings that's when we're set up to um to be violent to be abusive to to be abused like it creates this entire climate uh, where we're at risk of acting out and we i think would be able to i I think the, the the chances of abuse and um you know, pathological power dynamics would be reduced if we all learned growing up that sex is a part of being alive, right? That it is not, um, especially here in the U.S., I'm not sure where you, where your growing up experiences were, but certainly, you know, where I, the way that I grew up, it was that sex was talked about, either not talked about or talked about as a purely biological, right? And leaving out emotion, connection, and leaving out this idea that, You can be sexually curious. It's normal and healthy to be sexually curious. And that's separate and apart from choices that you make around sex. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that's to be curious and to be sexually engaged are two different things. And so I think that's something really important to normalize.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, I grew up also in the States, but, um, with, um, Indian parents. So like also very conservative family. So even talking about this right now is I feel like a big step for me, myself personally. Right. So talking about sex, very openly is not a common thing on our household at all of course um but talking about it openly on this widespread sort of platform now it sometimes always brings a little bit of a stress response for me because i'm like oh no my mom's gonna hear this right um <laughs> i do the same thing with my mom like i don't mom earmuffs don't listen yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly and she'll be like wait you're talking about sex right um and and that is exactly the way that we've been um we've been taught, but th- it is fascinating because I love going into like the history of of medicine, history of sexuality, his- history of humankind in general. And it is fascinating to see how like my, my parents are Hindu and, you know, it's fascinating to see how a lot of sexuality was like, there was a lot of sexualness in, in Hinduism, right? Like there's this, a lot of things, I mean, the Kama Sutra comes right. from india right comes from hinduism and um so it's like very fascinating to see how how that was suppressed so much um even though that's a huge part of our culture right um so yeah i think i mean i think we should stay
1: right there because that whole realm of spirituality is you know that was is fascinating right so there is there is this way that like more ancient spiritual practices really honored, right, the body, honored the feminine, honored like union, right, and, the, and sex as this very powerful portal to consciousness, to connection with divine, to connection with spirit. And I think it's sort of, if you look at sort of the history of patriarchy, right, and the history of like these systems that placed us in these hierarchical roles, that then is where you see like the splitting off and like the total contempt for the feminine. Um, and how much damage that does when we, you know, I always say the patriarchy hurts men as much as it hurts women, right? It puts men in this box where they're cut off from their essence of vulnerability and tenderness. Um, and then right. I mean, the history of medicine, my God, like, I feel like my head was like blown off my body when I saw this research around these feminist scholars went back and looked at medical textbooks and the ways in which medical textbooks would just omit the clitoris we're gonna in an anatomy textbook to omit this part of the woman's when you omit something you basically are saying it's too dangerous to name and talk about okay so why why and i think the why is if you really were to reckon with the fact that those of us who are born with a vulva are born with a piece of our anatomy that is solely there for pleasure no other purpose under the sun besides just feeling good if we were to really reckon with that you've got to like tear down the entire patriarchal structure and rebuild it on some other basis right because that is just magnificent and something that i think creates it it creates a kind of um, fear or desire to control you know
0: yeah definitely and and like you said i love how you put that with the feminine how how that suppresses so much the the feminine and for both the, the men and women, right? Um, we should have some level of a balance of our feminine and masculinity. And right now with the more, I mean, I think we're starting to shift again. I feel like we're shifting again, but definitely we are in a much more masculine, dominant environment with our patriarchal systems, just suppressing the feminine for everyone, both men and women. And, um, and that's, that's hurtful for all of us. And by, by us being able to be more open to our feminine side, men or women, doesn't matter. Um, we are allowing for that that more of that emotional spiritual connection that you speak about, I feel. Right. Yeah.
1: Which is which is required for health, or like I imagine with your naturopathic medicine perspective, like you know about the need for like flow and balance and like a holistic view of the system. And that when you tighten up or split off or like kind of shunt like one piece out of the system the system can't work right yes
0: it doesn't work as efficiently it doesn't work as well it just yeah it exactly when we look at the holistic person it just doesn't work that way so um yeah. So I, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And like, I can definitely talk about, I love talking about the history of medicine and um, <laughs> and the philosophy behind all these things as well. It's so fascinating that so much of it was just suppressed. And um, so going into that a little bit more. So what would you say some c- current common myths are of like female sexuality in general? Oh my gosh. Okay. Um,
1: well, Let's see. I think I think that one of the current myths. I, I think one of the things that I feel like gets people into the most trouble, and it's not specifically about female sexuality, but this idea that. Um, if we aren't wanting to jump our partner's bones every minute of the day in a relationship, that something is wrong. It's either something's wrong with me if I don't want you, or something's wrong with you if you don't want me, or something's wrong with us if we don't want each other all of the time. So I think that there's um, one of the really important things that is, for sure, you know, by like physiological, but with tons of psychological and relational fallout, is that sexual desire isn't alive dynamic, multifactorial kind of a thing, right? So for many of us in the early stages of an intimate partnership, there's a lot of what we would call spontaneous desire. Like just, Mm -hmm. I cannot wait to touch you. I cannot wait to connect with you in that way. It's really driven by like all of the sort of endorphins and dopamine and all of that novelty, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's really normative for that physiologic for the physiology to shift as we settle in Like you look at sort of the the brain physiology of early attraction is different than the brain physiology of a long-term intimate partnership, which is much more fueled by attachment, like oxytocin and Mm -hmm. bonding. And I know that I, you know, when I'm stressed, I will go and just like get like snuggle out to my husband and just smell him, right? We've been together for so long. And so I am literally like hardwired. To have my physiology soothed by his smell, by his presence, right? By the way his, his body feels. And so that's, in um, that, that, that whole set, that whole gift of attachment and connection, um, it's not in, in conflict with spontaneous desire, but it flows, right? And so then desire can oftentimes especially in a longer term, sexually monogamous relationship, desire can shift from less spontaneous desire to more responsive desire. And responsive mm. desire is, I'm not actively consciously feeling horny, but a great conversation, some relaxing time together, um, some, you know, a sort of steamy scene in a movie that we're watching. What, all these kind of cues that are sexual desire, can become a bit more responsive to contextual cues. And so one of the most important things I do when I'm teaching anybody or talking to anybody about that is just teach that model. Because what happens is when desire starts to shift in a relationship, like I was saying in the beginning of this long-winded response, is that um, that we can start to get scared. Like what's going on? Am I broken? Are you broken? Are we broken? Are we not meant for each other? And we can sort of spiral into that meaning-making space where if we have the information that actually desire can shift and the goal for longer term couples is just to cultivate an erotic atmosphere in their relationship, then it's like, there can be this deep
0: exhale, you know, yeah, definitely. I, I like that a lot because yeah, there. I feel like everyone's always talking about, you know, initially when you're together, that honeymoon phase, the, when you're together and we we think about, like you said, physiologically, there are just so many different endorphins that go through your body during that time. But whenever you um, start to have a longer term relationship, the, the hormones change. That's really all that's happening. And, and, and that's what it sounds like. And being able to understand that, can be very helpful in maintaining that relationship and then creating an environment. Like you said, I really like that. Um, you know, just like making it sexier, you know, like creating an environment where you're like spending more time together or you're like making sure you're having quality time together. Or um, I did an episode where I interviewed uh, Dr. Leah Gordon and we talked about uh, low sex drive in women. Yeah. And when we talked about like one of the things that like for women, some of the things that turn women on are just like, oh, like you know, he just did the dishes without like anything, right? Like it's just like it's like, oh, okay, uh, and like it could be little things like that in a longer term relationship that can lead to those um, those more sexual erotic moments and times. Yes, yeah. I always
1: say that um, de rolling is a team sport, meaning that especially for when women are in the caregiving. Stages. I mean, we're talking like heterosexually, you know, heteros- I'm using some heterosexual language, but oftentimes the roles in the home, especially if it's a heterosexual couple, is that she's doing a lot of the caregiving and um, And that role, the caregiving role, is not a particularly erotic role. And so it's the job of both partners to help her remember that she's a woman, that that sex is actually going to feel really good, that she deserves some pleasure, that she deserves to kind of escape and surrender and connect with her partner in that way. And so it's subtle, though, because if he's going to do the dishes to help her make that shift, he has to be able to do them, not like. Okay, I did the dishes now. Is it you know now is the it time? It's to, it needs to be a bit savvier around that. Really, we both are figuring out how to help me take off this role of mama caregiver, domestic goddess, and step into something a bit different.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then uh, I think one of the things you talked about was like potentially watching like an erotic movie or something. So I kind of want to get into how porn um, can affect sexual just affect relationships love and sex and in relationships in general um, do you have any insight on that because I feel like that's something people always want to know more about for sure yeah I mean yeah. my gosh it's a really fraught
1: topic and I will say um, my own field is really struggling we're we're really stuck in this binary like there are people in the field who are pro porn and people in the field who are anti porn and so we get kind of locked into this question of is porn good or is porn bad and when we get stuck in that question we don't which is we don't ask the more interesting questions, right? Like in what context is it helpful, in what context is it dangerous. And and um so I think we get we make that binary that doesn't help us out very much. I think couples as well will get stuck arguing whether porn is good or bad, hurtful to women, objectifies men, addictive objectifies women, perpetuates patriarchy, um, is addictive and those those kinds of like is it this or this? Keep couples from um, using this complicated topic to help them understand themselves and each other better. Because if, um, if one part is feeling really defensive, like I wanna be able to have a relationship with porn, rather than the other person getting critical, like what's wrong with you that you want a relationship with porn, what would be more helpful is to unpack why, like, what does porn do for you? Where does it take you? What are you looking for? Um, And especially I find this with younger, you know, anybody who's about 30 or younger, right. Has had, you know, has had access to like free streaming porn since they were teens. And so that relationship with porn but likely predates their relationship with an intimate partner right it may have been their first experience of their own sexuality their first experience of orgasm of touch Mm -hmm. was through porn and so it's 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 old and there can and that can sort of fuel that defensiveness or protectiveness of like don't take this away from me it may have been i think for a lot of people it was a soothing mechanism during adolescence Um, especially if somebody had a really complicated family system, didn't feel a lot of control. It was probably, it was potentially um, a way of soothing themselves. And so I want couples to be able to talk about porn, but I want them to be able to talk about it with a lot of nuance and a lot of willingness to kind of hold complexity versus getting all locked in. Like, are we going to allow this in our relationship? or Are we not going to allow this in our relationship? and then I think, I mean, it just deserves to be said. I think a lot of porn is incredibly problematic, right? The whole industry ha- is ripe for abuse and mistreatment. And so I love turning to producers who um, who are feminist producers, like Erica Lost is a um, a big role model for me. And she creates, you know she creates atmospheres when her films are made, in which people feel the actors feel elevated and supported and intimate and connected, and she is really intentional about fair um, fair pay and fair treatment. Um, so I think we need to have a critical eye. I think we need to have an ethical eye. Um, yeah, and those are, and and not just kind of get stuck in this like good-bad split.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, and I really appreciate that. I feel like in our um, American culture, we tend to be so all or nothing with everything, right? Like it's, all, it's either you're pro this or you're anti, like there's no like in between of anything. And so um, porn is obviously no different from so much more of our culture. Um, so many more of our, I don't know, complicated issues that we have in our culture. Um, and I really like that you're just like, it's not black and white, like there's some gray area. Um, it, you know, having these conversations and also putting, I I think I've actually never heard it that way where you're putting that insight to like, that could be the first experience anyone ever had with, um, with their own sexuality. And so, so that is like a deeper connection than, than this person, or they've had such a deep connection with it. And so that I really like that you put that because that is so true. Like you said, especially for people under 30, um, because they've had access to it so easily since, since they were teenagers. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that, and I think that there can be a
1: journey where like I have talked to a number of men in my life who have like gr- kind of outgrown their relationship with porn. And it, and it wasn't like sort of, I think the worst case scenario is that he says, fine, I'll stop using, it. I won't do it anymore because then it feels, he feels controlled. He feels like the loss of it versus sometimes I think I'm, um, I'm using men in particular because I do think they're a bit more of a proclivity um, for men to have this, like, long, long relationship. I think men will sometimes, like, evolve their relationship, and that is a deep inner soul journey that has to do with them caring for their teen self and saying, like, I get that this served you. During this time, I'm thankful we had that and now we're not going to use it because now we're with this partner and we want to be present to this partner and we are aware that now the cost outweighs the benefit in a way that maybe it didn't back when, you know, we were a, whatever, a lonely, terrified 13, 14, 15 year old guy. So I think that is like a deep soul journey that, that needs to come from its own space of healing and pride in his choices, you know, rather than
0: like, okay, fine. I just won't do it anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it takes out that, like you said, the element of control. I feel like that often um, can be such a huge problem in relationships of just like wanting to change the other person instead of the person working on themselves and and then loving them for whoever they are, wherever they are. Um, I I feel like that tends to be a common issue in relationships. Yeah. And I also appreciate you bringing up the ethical side of porn uh, too and um, giving an example. So, you know, that that is really important to also address and and consider whenever you are uh, partaking or watching porn, pornography, things like that. So I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, and we in the
1: in the book we did, um, there's a whole resource guide in the back of taking sexy back, and we listed some um, some uh, some curators of ethical porn and ethical mm-hmm. porn producers because I do think that it's it's worth. It's like, I'm sure the same things you would talk about with your patients about sort of being mindful of the choices of, of everything we consume, the medicine we consume, the food we consume, the media we consume, this is no different, right? To just be really mindful of the energy and what, you know, there's a sort of energetic exchange and how do we want to participate
0: in, in that? In the system, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it goes across the board for literally every everything I feel. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so I do appreciate that and, um, kind of going back to so we we talked about um how people or how young people under 30 usually millennials and uh, younger have had their phones and have had pornography at their fingertips but another thing that has also affected relationships um and they have had also at their fingertips since a very young age is social media um and um and so one of the things i actually recently I recently just watched during quarantine uh, uh, Chris Rock's Netflix standup. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but he talks about how you know his relationship of 16 years was technically longer than his parents' 40-year relationship <laughs> because he had social media and they were always talking. You know, so it feels so like it was actually longer. And I I thought that was an interesting point because it kind of makes sense that wasn't necessarily the dynamic in relationships prior to the internet and social media and having all of that access right at our fingertips. So, how do you feel like that affects relationships, and what do you, kind of, what kind of recommendations or suggestions do you have in terms of that to kind of optimize a relationship?
1: Oh gosh, I mean,
0: it's a huge.
1: It's just such a huge yeah. question, isn't it? Um, and I think that, like, I love that example because it just it allows. I think especially for millennials and now Gen Z, like, there's there's not a contrast. I think that like those of us like gen xers we have um like we have the contrast right we have we had like chapters of our story as adults where social media and our phones weren't part of our adult relationships and now and now they are and so i think that it can be helpful like there's so much obviously i am learning so much from my students and my clients who are digital natives, and I have tons to learn from them. I'm so appreciative of that. I think there is a space also for digital immigrants to also be able to say like, but this is not, so that's what what Chris Rock is doing, right? He's saying this isn't how it always was. Like when my parents separated in the morning, they were separated. They didn't have any, there was no contact between the kiss goodbye in the morning and the kiss hello getting home. Mm -hmm. And that does just create a different rhythm. And so mm-hmm. I think that um, the biggest thing that comes up around this is, is boundaries um, mm-hmm. and, and, ha- and then needs, right? So if I'm, if I'm feeling like I need and want us to have a steady stream of contact back and forth all day long, what's the why? Like what's the, what, what's the urge? What's the, um, the itch I'm trying to scratch with that? And I think oftentimes it can be fueled certainly by love, but I think it can often be fueled by anxiety, right? Like that I, it's hard for me to trust that you're holding me in your awareness, that you're thinking of me, that you, do you love me? Are you thinking of me? Do I matter to you? And so the phone can be a really concrete place where that gets played out. If I see that my text to you is this long and your text to me is this long, I'm at risk of importing a narrative that I love you more than you love me. And so I think what we need to do is take those, those like data points, like, I don't know why you're not texting me back during the day, rather than being like, why don't you love me? Kind of unpacking the question, like, what gets stirred up in me when I don't hear from you for a while? What are my worries? What are my fears? And what are some other ways that you might, you'll let me know that you're excited about our relationship, that we're in this together, um, besides besides this like very concrete way of playing it out. So long way Mm -hmm. of saying, I think the phone cranks up the volume on questions that we always have anyways. We're always Mm -hmm. wondering in our intimate partnerships, do I matter to you? Do you have my back? Am I okay? Um, Are we okay? Those questions are universal and they are perennial, but the phone can sort of make those questions get really, really concrete in ways that can spike our anxiety. And we just are then invited into questions about self-soothing and questions about boundaries.
0: Definitely, yeah, I really like that. It's um, it's actually really funny how how that is such such a thing. I, I'm like even thinking about myself. As a very young girl, like as a teenager, mm-hmm. I remember realizing that I would have this level of anxiety if the, a boy didn't text me back, you know, and I, I had a crush on him or something and if he didn't text me back. And so um, I, I like created my own defense mechanism of where I would only respond to him when I had something else to do. So if I was about to go to tennis practice or something, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to respond now Brilliant. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I can't, I can't like focus on it, you know? Um, but now I've realized in my adult life, I tend to just do that automatically with like everyone. I just like respond and I'm like, oh, okay. And I forget about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it is very fascinating how like we, we do that in our minds. Absolutely. And I think
1: that, I think that the... I think it's so important to normalize that. Like, I love that you you are sharing that because it's really important to normalize it. Because sometimes we'll do like a double flip, right? We'll say like, I know I'm doing this thing. I know it's a defense mechanism. And what's wrong with me that I'm doing it, right? When in fact, of course we do it. Like, we do it in part because it's just the dopamine, right? There's this, like, it's a physiological response, I know that I put an Instagram post up. I mean, I'm, you know, well into my midlife. I'll put an Instagram post up and I can feel, like I feel it in my body, the eagerness to know how is this post being received? And like it is definitely physiological. And so I I can hold awareness of that process rather than judging myself for the process. And when I hold awareness, it gives me some flexibility about am I going to participate? Am I going to not participate? Right. Like that's where we get that's where we can kind of make some choices. Because you're right, like it is not, there's no way when you have a crush on a boy, there's no way you're not gonna be, you know, checking your phone every 10 seconds to see if he's gotten back to you. Like it's just the nature of being a human being.
0: It, yeah, it really, really is. And I mean, I mean, if we think about even before phones, like people were sending notes and things like that, there was always something that you were like waiting for. And so totally, it's just become a little bit more instant now, or it could be more instant. And so we, we tend to get that. And like you said, it's that dopamine rush. And so one of the things I actually do talk about um, with all my patients, with um, my listeners, my followers, I talk about doing like a dopamine detox and just like cutting off from all of it for, I try to cut off for like, at least a day a week. So just like my Friday, I I can be out with friends and doing whatever, but like not on any sort of internet, social media, anything worrying about it. And honestly, that's made just like doing it once a week has made it so much easier throughout the week to not crave that as much. You know what I mean? That's great. That's really, really good advice. Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful. Um, But yeah, so uh, I think we're kind of running out of time. So um, before we move on to the more rapid fire questions, I had one last question. So if people are trying to, or just getting into finally owning their sexuality, what would you say some of their, the first steps that they could take to do that would be obviously getting your book, but, (laughs) um, but beyond that, what else do you think that they could yeah, I think,
1: you know, to, as, a, as a therapist, I all my perspective is always that you look back to go forward. So if you're going to be claiming your sexuality, you start by just looking at all the crap that you have inherited and internalized that you did not ask for. So I really, in the book, there's lots of questions about looking at your sex education, messages from your family. What did your family call genitals? You know, like what were the names for it? What, what was the energy that those names um, held in them and sort of what were those first messages so like looking back at the story of your sexual self and understanding the roots and then from that place of awareness, you then get to choose what am I going to let go of and shed and um, it refuse to kind of believe in anymore and what am I going to claim instead And so I think the first step is kind of looking backwards, doing that inventory, getting some clarity around our inheritance so that then we can make some different choices going forward but I think and the other thing I will say is just um um not being afraid to read and listen to things that are about sex right because I we have to be lifelong learners about sex and not afraid of kind of filling in those Mm -hmm. gaps in our in our information because there's no way that we have everything that we need so just not being afraid of having of being a student
0: Yes, I love that. I love being a lifelong learner about anything, but yeah, definitely sex Um, because we still are, there's so much we're still trying to figure out about our sexualities and science is still so far behind because we did suppress it for so long, and so, um, so yeah, we're on that track, and so we're all learning together, and I love that. Um, okay, so, um, before we move on to the rapid fire questions, was there anything else that you wanted to add, um, before we moved on, or any resources that you recommend for the listeners? Um, I had like a little bit of a power
1: outage, so oh. my printer is now going crazy. <laughs> no worries, hang on. Um, okay, so is there anything else I want to share in terms of resources? Um, if there, if you have listeners who are therapists or coaches, um, I think it is worth mentioning that I, about, well, a few months ago, we launched this big e-course that I developed with um, a big like continuing education provider in the mental health world called Psychotherapy Networker. And... Um, and on my website, and maybe we can post a, a link in the show notes mm-hmm. um, to, that, to that e-course, it's, it's um, worth a number of, there's like, I don't know, maybe 18 continuing education hours that come through it. And it's a really um, kind of integrated look at, um, it's called Loving Bravely Helping Clients Who Are Single, Dating, and Single Again. Um, That would be one resource to share. And and like I said, in both of my books, there are resource guides in the back for additional content about love, sex, and intimacy.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right. So getting into the rapid fire questions. um, They're the rapid fire. They're called rapid fire questions because they're a little bit quicker than the other questions before um, with the interview. But really, you don't have to answer them rapidly. (laughs) Just take your time. Uh, So uh, my first question for you is, so Mahan health means great health, which means Um, optimal health, and that's kind of the goal of this podcast in general is to help people achieve optimal or great health. So for you, what does Mahan Health mean to you? Mm. Mahan
1: Health to me means honoring that I can't do everything all the time and making sure that I am um, saying yes when it's a really aligned, juicy um, heartfelt yes and getting comfortable saying no because I know that I'm at risk like many of us who are ambitious and curious and passionate about the work we do I'm at risk of um, kind of depleting myself and so Mahan Health is about making sure I'm getting enough sleep and um, time with my friends and time with my husband and kids and being able to say no even um, even when it's difficult
0: yes I love that um, having that heartfelt yes is so important. And like you said, definitely something that I'm personally working on too. So um, so yeah, I love that. And that actually might go into some of the, the next questions. Um, the next two questions, they could be related. Um, I mean, it sounds like it might be similar to what you just answered, but it is, um, the questions are what was the most difficult health change for you to make personally, and what are you still working on? Oh my gosh, okay, my most difficult health
1: change was moving I I had done I had been um a competitive CrossFit athlete. I mean not like at a high level, but I was I would do CrossFit competitions pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. And um I was getting injured. I had a really like significant like C three, C four, like disc, you know, rupture and um, needed to move away from lifting weights in that way and shifting into something that would be more sustainable for the longer term and something that would not make me as injury prone. And that was really difficult to shed the layers of identity and ego that I had wrapped up in, um, in that way of being an athlete.
0: Yeah, I can definitely empathize with that. I used to do high intensity interval training about six days a week. And now I do it like once or twice a week um, because I still haven't been able to fully let it go. But um, but it's been, it's been a process. So I definitely understand that as well. Um, and then what is something that you're still working on?
1: Something I am still working on is getting enough sleep. I, it's really clear that my body needs seven to eight hours of sleep. And I, I still, that is a growing edge for me.
0: Definitely. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I asked those questions because I feel like, um, people can really relate to, to a lot of the different things that we still struggle with and also like humanizing, uh, the doctors who are out there who are obviously promoting Mm -hmm. these great things, but like, we still have things that we're working on too. Right. Um, so I really like asking those questions. So my last question for you is if you could have a commercial about anything, a PSA on any health related thing, um, what would it be about and why? Um, my PSA would be about
1: um, knowing that our physical health and our relationship health are completely related to each other and that, and that um, to not be afraid to ask for couples therapy. Um, that those of us who are in longer term intimate relationships, the quality of that relationship has a massive impact on our physical health and our wellness. And so in couples therapy works, there's a huge body of science supporting couples therapy. And so to let go of the shame and the stigma that surround couples therapy and to go early and to go often to take a dose-based approach to couples therapy, meaning that you go for a little while around a transition, then you can stop for a bit and go back in you know, When you're moving, somebody changes jobs, you have a baby, you have a teenager, or you're launching your empty nest, but there's times for couples therapy where you have somebody in the room with you who's an ally and a cheerleader and an explorer with you in understanding and making sense of yourselves and each other.
0: Yeah, I love that. So would you recommend uh, doing it more preventatively too or more oh mostly- my gosh.
1: Absolutely. I love when I have dating couples coming in for couples therapy. I think it's beautiful. Dating couples, engaged couples, newly married couples. Mm -hmm. There isn't it's really not ever too early. I mean, maybe first date would be too early. (laughs) It's not ever too early to understand because because you're gonna get active romantic love activates all of our stuff, all of our old wounds, all of our Mm -hmm. triggers. And so understanding that is um it's beautiful preventative medicine.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, I, have always thought that too. I've always thought that, you know, it'd be, it'd be good to always have that constant stream of communication. And I think um, in our world uh, today, I mean, I feel like for quite some time, especially with the patriarchy being so involved um, I feel like it's difficult for so many couples to communicate what they want from one another or what they, what they personally want for themselves, because often they haven't explored enough to even know what they want and need for themselves. And so um, having that Therapist there can help support you both. And like you said, I like that they're your ally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, that is all I have for you today. So thank you again so much for joining uh, us on the show. And this was really fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was so lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. I hope you had as much fun as I did with that episode with Dr. Solomon and are inspired to take your sexy back because let's be honest, you are flawless in every way. And I need you to remember that this Valentine's day and beyond. I will have Dr. Solomon's information in the show notes below. So make sure to check her out and remember to check out her books, Taking Sexy Back and Loving Bravely. She's a phenomenal author and um, obviously an amazing person, too. So I'm so excited about um, all that she's doing and for you all to explore her a little bit further. But that is all I got for you all today. Wishing you all Mahan health and sending you all so much love and sexiness. And I will see you next time.